You are listening to The Real Faith Stories Podcast, interviews with people who chose to boldly follow their faith. I'm your host, Brian Robinson. Now, let's meet our guest and hear their story. Bradley Carter, welcome to Real Faith Stories. You have uh, really an amazing story of redemption in your life through so many different twists and turns. Please share your backstory and go ahead and just tell us what's happened. What has God done in your life? Well, Brian, first, thank you for having me. Sometimes our stories, albeit that they're our own, we don't always think that there's much to them. And I fall in that camp. I don't know. If it were for me, there wouldn't be much of a story. I'll say it that way. <laughs> but but for God and what He's doing, because I know I wouldn't be here if it weren't for Him. So you know, just to kind of take a, a step back, I'm 44, and it's really no short of a miracle that I'm here. I was raised in a Christian home. I was raised to go to church. And unfortunately, in the time that I was growing up, I was also raised how to play church, mm. you know, on Wednesday nights and Sunday. And you know how to to say and do all the right things in front of the right people, which just really, I think, more fed to a lot of my rebellion. I had a great mom and dad who really tried to pour into me. I can't blame them. We all had our, our ups and downs and our hard times, but they were present. They showed up to baseball games and other sporting activities and school events and stuff. I just, I had a rebellious spirit. And my dad got sick around my 16, 17 year age. So junior, senior in high school. And my mom had to really focus on him, which allowed me a lot of free time and a lot of unsupervised free time, which really led me down a path that I didn't need to be going down. And I started drinking and smoking cigarettes and just hanging around with some of the wrong people. So much so that I stopped playing sports my senior year of high school. And yet somehow was still offered a scholarship for baseball, but it didn't come in the time frame or the way I wanted it to. And I was extremely prideful and arrogant. So I decided to join the army and teach my parents and the rest of the world that I knew what I was doing. And I knew better than they did. Of course, boot camp wakes you up and you realize you don't know anything. <laughs> and I think it was probably my third week of boot camp. I got to call home to let them know I was alive. What was going on, so to speak, my, my younger brother had gotten on the phone to let me know that I was an idiot. And that my college scholarship had come through. I just was very impatient. Let me get some clarity around that. So you were expecting a scholarship. It just didn't come in the timing. Timing or the school. I had another offer, but it wasn't the school that I wanted to go either. Like I said, it, the level of arrogance and pride I had was was really off the charts. I, I was just very full of myself. Any other man listening to this understand we struggle with that basically daily in a lot of ways. So I hung up the phone after talking with them and just beating myself up for obviously not being patient when I could be in college playing ball. And instead, I'm sitting here getting yelled at by some of the biggest, scariest guys I've ever seen in my life. No doubt. You fast forward through that. I graduated boot camp and our advanced trainings and I became a military police officer. And my father has always worked for the Highway Patrol of Oklahoma within different divisions since I can remember. I didn't want to do all the things that required to be a cop in, in the state or the city. So I figured I could do it for a few years in the army. And then when I get out, I could be a cop here. And one day, it was in May, I was coming home from my duty station in Georgia and was going to come watch my little sister graduate high school and fell asleep at the wheel, had a car accident. 
just outside of Shreveport, Louisiana. The last thing I remember is my truck should have gone over an overpass. And in Louisiana, you don't want to end up in any of those bayous or any of those yeah. those river tributaries. But when I came to, my, my truck was sideways on the interstate across a couple of different lanes, sitting in the middle of that overpass. The guardrail had caught my truck and kept me from going over. Fortunately, it was so early in the morning, there were no other cars on the road. Fortunately, I avoided any other kind of accidents or anything, but was banged up pretty good. And after getting some help and going to a hospital, I got put on a bus to go back to my duty station. I had missed my sister's graduation and missed that weekend with my family. About three weeks later, I get a call that my truck's ready. I had a friend drive me into Louisiana to pick it up. And at this point in time, I've been on painkillers and muscle relaxers and PT trying to get all that banged up body back into some kind of shape. Mm-hmm. And I'd hit a level of depression being on these drugs that I had never experienced before. Being away from home, being beat up, I keep playing over all the woulda, coulda, shouldas. And so I go to pick up my truck and I drive in to Oklahoma City to see my family and met up with some friends and had some drinks and we're doing some things and just made the decision I wasn't going to go back to the army. I went AWOL. It was a very difficult time, I always say, in my life. My uh, father still worked for the Highway Patrol, so there was absolutely no way his son, who is on drugs and has just now made a decision to to really end any kind of advancement in his life, is going to be able to stay at his house. Wow. And so I lived in my truck, friends' couches, if they'd let me. I did that for, for quite some time. So what happened with the Army reaching out to you? Well, I hid from them. I mean, I was hiding from them as, as much as I could. I'm driving around. Anytime I'm on town, I'm, I'm picking up jobs. I'm doing whatever I can. Uh, but anytime I see a car with the license plate from Georgia, like I pucker. I, I feel like someone's coming to get me. I think that lasted a couple months, three months. And I just was sick of living in that lifestyle. And I went to my dad's house to turn myself in to him and actually got met by a Bethany police officer with a warrant for my arrest. When you went to your dad's? When I went to my dad's, my mom and dad were gone, but that officer sure wasn't. She was ready for me. I just, I lost, I broke down and I didn't put any kind of fight up. I didn't say anything to her. I knew why she was there and she kind of chuckled and she looked at me. She said, you've got to be the easiest warrant I've ever served. (laughs) And I said, I know, I know what you're here for. I know why. So I'm not, it's not your fault. I'm not fighting you. You went to your dad's house to turn yourself in and the Bethany police officers waiting for you with a warrant. That's incredible. I still didn't see it yet. I wasn't ready to see things yet. I hadn't, hadn't hit that bottom. Sure. I just think the timing's magnificent. Oh, God's timing's always great. All too often, it's always hindsight that we recognize that. For sure. So I go to Fort Sill to do some out-processing. I call my duty station in Georgia, apologetic, ready to face the music and go back. And I told them I'd like to come back, but I need help getting off drugs. And they decided they didn't want me. They, they discharged me. Without recourse, I actually got a a, a general discharge. Well, that's another miracle. It is. So it wasn't until years later that I found out that I was nothing but a financial decision. Mm. And the general discharge under honorable conditions was a good way of getting me to just walk away without saying anything to them either. That was another form of just kind of just being rejected in some ways. And I didn't really realize it at that point, which just kind of helped me spiral even more into drugs and alcohol, living a lifestyle that wasn't conducive for living for that matter. I should have died a number of times through working in nightclubs and bars and restaurants. I buried a number of friends because of drugs and alcohol. Wow. And it, it very well should have been me. 
But as I'm going through all of this, my father's diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. My mother has all the arthritis you can you can think of and, and, and is post-polio. And so watching them try to take care of each other was very difficult, but it did allow me to move in with them. So I had a place to stay because I could help do things around the house and help take care of them. And it was a good little arrangement basically for all of us at the time, but it still helped perpetuate my addictions. And I was very much a functioning drug user. So in the clubs and bars, just ruining my life. And I end up meeting the woman who is now my wife. She's kind of on the same trajectory. And we go through a, a number of ups and downs trying to get her to pay attention to me or even answer my call and she won't do it. So I pull out all the stops to try to get her attention, which finally worked. And we talk back and forth a little bit. I leave town for work for a couple months. I come back. We run into each other again. She's out with some friends and I'm trying to buy her some drinks, which she won't take. And I find out she's not drinking because she's pregnant. And usually that's my key to leave. But I just could not get this woman off my mind. And so I called her one night and asked her if she'd go to a, this concert with me. So the first time Circus de Soleil was in Oklahoma and I had tickets to the last night and she laughed at me and cried a little and told me no. And anybody who wanted to date a pregnant girl was weird, which she's not wrong. So she said that she said that and and then ended up hanging up on me. And 30 minutes later, she calls me back and asked me if that ticket, that invite was still available. And I just started laughing. She asked me why. And I said, you find out that it was sold out. She goes, yeah. And so we chuckled a little bit and we went on our first date and we had an amazing evening. And I think we only watched half the show. The other half of the show after intermission, we stayed in the lounge just talking. The next day we had lunch together. The day after that we had dinner. And then we, we just haven't really spent a day apart since. It just clicked. We were married a year later. We wanted to wait till after her son was born before we were to get married. So he was born in August of that year, six months later, almost a year to the day of our first date. And that was almost 18 years ago. So she she was not raised in church, and I sure wasn't walking in church or, or guiding her that way. But as we had had the first and we're, were working on having another one, I wanted the kids to go to church. And I told her, and I remember saying this really arrogant statement, you and I don't have to go, but I want the kids to know the truth so later in life they can make their decision. And it wasn't until years later the Lord reminded me of that statement to her and just how how dumb I had to have been to say, I want them to know the truth so they can make their choice because you and I don't have to. Like, I've already made the choice. I'm not going to follow him. And I weeped over those words for so long. And just how gracious God is to hear something like that being said to him. Like, I know you're the truth, but I, I've chosen not to walk your way. And yet he still welcomed me back. So tell me about that. Where was the transition point, the inflection point for you with respect to your relationship with the Lord. We actually didn't know where to go. So we started going to the church my mom and dad went to, which was Victory Church in War Acres, mm-hmm. Oklahoma. And I was kind of enjoying it. It was it was an easy transition, honestly, from the nightclubs and bar scenes because the music was loud and had great lights. And it was kind of where I'd already come from a little bit. My wife, on the other hand, did not like it. The couple times she had ever graced church, she she had grown up with a Catholic family, so this was way outside her comfort zone. But within just a short couple of months, the Lord had just started getting hold of both of us, and we weren't sure what was going on. But I started pushing back and not wanting to go to church, and now she was pressing in and dragging me to it. I can't tell you the real direct aha moment, but I know it happened together. 
because we both just looked at each other with tears in our eyes and we just knew we're home and, and this is where we needed to be. And so we dedicated our lives to Jesus. Uh, and shortly thereafter, we were even baptized together. And it just, it started this thing of just understanding that we had lived so carelessly and boldly, not for God, that we knew we were going to have to live just that same boldness for God. I knew I needed to learn as much as I could. I, I felt like I'd wasted so much time and everything I'm reading in the Bible is telling me to, that the elders hold the wisdom. And so I wanted to press into any Bible study that had older men in it that could teach me business, could teach me how to lead my family. I wanted to know anything and everything I could. I was just so hungry. But yet I was still struggling with the flesh. I still wanted to go out on weekends and have drinks and go hang out with friends who were still partying. But yet when I'd go into those situations, it was the most uncomfortable feeling I'd ever felt. So it was a real battle. And I decided to go to Texas one weekend with my father. We were going to hit a couple bars, hit a Texas Rangers game, and just spend some time together. At least that was my plan. And my dad and God had another plan. He had brought a book on CD, and he asked me, can we listen to this, please, on the way down? It should, it should be finished by the time we get to Dallas. I was like, sure. And it was a book by John Bevere called Affabel. The way they read the book is it's like a, a literary tale. So it's kind of a, a portrayal, and like they're acting it out. And this whole time you're listening to the lives of these people and you can tell through the book who the Holy Spirit is, who God is and who they're trying to talk to. And, you know, by the end of the book, Jesus has come back and now they're standing before the judgment seat and giving an account of what you've already heard through the book. Wow. And it just wrecked me. We had crossed the Red River. We were in Texas now and I stopped and I called home and I was just in tears and I was saying, God's calling me into the ministry. And I've got a pregnant wife on the other end of the phone trying to figure out what in the world I'm talking about. <laughs> and she, she said, I, I need you to know that grandma just died. On that call? On that call. And I just stopped and I said, okay. I said, I'll come home. She said, no, you need this time with your dad. Go do it. After a little bit of arguing, I listened to her. We head down to, to Dallas. By the time we get to our hotel, I have finished this book with my dad. And I know full-fledged I am to be in the ministry I don't know fully what it looks like, but I know that's what he's calling me to do. And so we spent the rest of the weekend not doing any of my plans except for the Texas Rangers game. Other than that, we stayed in the hotel room talking and praying. I get back home and we deal with the family stuff that we need to deal with. We start praying together and I get invited to help lead a mission trip to Haiti with our youth group at church. I don't know how we're going to do this with my wife and the kids and everything that's going on, but... God, if you want us to go on this, I, I want you to pay for it. I could have written the check. We were doing very well. I had an insurance agency at the time, but we really felt like God wanted to prove himself and show us. So we said, Lord, you pay for it. And I, I went to every car wash, fundraiser, golf tournament, whatever we had to do to raise money. I wasn't going to not be a participant in it, but I wanted to see it happen that way. And it did. God really showed up to help cover that. And I head off to this trip to Haiti, uh, leave my wife and kids behind, get into Haiti. We land, and this is pre-earthquake at this time. When they open the door, the heat, the humidity, and the smell just hits you so hard. And it's so bad, but yet it smelled so good to me in a weird way. Like I knew I was home. Like this is where I was supposed to be. I couldn't call home. The phone I had brought was not an international phone, so there was no way of getting a call out to my wife to let her know we'd landed and I was safe. And so it takes about a day before I find a, an American missionary there who had a phone that I could, I could pay them to let me use. And I call home to let Amy know I was safe and 
kind of what we've been doing. She lets me know that her last grandma had just passed away. Oh, man. And this one was really like her mom. When her mom died, when she was about 18, 17, 18, and this grandma stepped up. And so I knew not to even ask. I just knew I needed to get home. And that night, I had an upper room experience with the Holy Spirit. I was blessed by some elders and just filled with the Holy Spirit. There's the only way I know how to explain it is just to compare it to the upper room we read about in Acts. What happened? I broke. Everything in me broke. And I literally felt the addictions gone. I felt the Holy Spirit enter me. I spoke in tongues for the first time and was surrounded by men of not only our church, but of the Haitian church praying over me. And it was, it was just a night that I, I don't believe I'll ever forget. And it confirmed not only was I to be in ministry, but I was to be in Haiti. So I spent the next morning walking a couple of villages, asking people what they needed, what they felt like would help change the course of their town there and then their country even. Because I felt like we, as missionaries, sometimes we're very arrogant. We come in and we tell people what they need to do to fix their country. And then we leave after a week. But yet we don't ever ask them, what do they need? What do they see? They live there daily. And every man told me he wanted a job. He just needed a job. He wanted to have the sense of providing for his family when he looked at them across the table or across the room in their house. Right now, they have to go stand six hours in line to get their chicken, to get their rations of rice and beans. But they want to work. As I came home, my wife and I just started praying. What can we do? Because insurance isn't going to cut it. And that's all I know right now. So what job could we do? Well, she has a dream about a concrete recycling and construction company. Of course. Of course. Why not? Yeah. I, I couldn't put two pieces of wood together with a nail at this point in time in my life. I had no clue what to do. She wakes me up at midnight to tell me this dream. I'm mad at her for waking me up, and I'm laughing at the same time because there's absolutely no sense to this. Right. And then a week later, the earthquake hits Haiti. So my first call was to my pastor to find out when we're going back and what we can do. My second call was to my wife to apologize <laughs> for <laughs> making fun of her and laughing at her and understanding that now that this looks like it, it actually has maybe some more merit. And now I need to start studying concrete recycling and construction to figure out what in the world's going to happen. Well, it takes about six months before you can even get in country if you're not Red Cross, first aid, or some kind of service. And then once we do get back in, I'm trying to talk to anybody and everybody I can to figure out what we can do. I find out the government of Haiti is willing to give away property, pieces of land, if people would come put businesses in. So we're doing everything we can, but no matter what piece of so-called free property we're being shown, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars. And so nine months into me going back and forth, talking with the government, talking with people, and, and in this time, I've even been able to have a presentation that I was able to deliver to parliament. Wow. And I just remember thinking, Lord, two years ago, I was drugs alcohol, stupid, just all sorts of different things. What's going on? Now I'm, you've got me standing in front of parliament. And I didn't really get much of an answer, so I just felt like I should just keep pressing in. So nine months later, I got my dad with me on his first trip to Haiti. We're looking at everything. Still nothing is breaking free. The last day that we're in Haiti, my dad and I are having breakfast. And I was official, just so you know, at this point in time. I had the, the shirts and the hats and all the stuff that had our our logos and our business on there, we were called Kingdom Concrete Recycling and Construction. Mm -hmm. I hadn't moved one rock, but I had all the paperwork ready for it. A missionary walks by me, sees our, our logo and our name, and goes, that's really interesting. I like the name. Can you tell me about it? And I'm still telling anybody and everybody who'll listen to me all about what God's telling me to do. 
And he looked at me, he's like, that is an amazing story. Let me tell you why it won't work. I was like, great. (laughs) Just another kick down. And he explains to me the reason nobody's really recycling the concrete in Haiti is because it's 90% sand. They're taking all the rebar out of everything, but they'll just throw all the concrete in the ocean and it'll dissolve. He goes, but one thing I've learned is the reason that God gets you to one place isn't always the same reason you stay. Do you mind if I pray with you? I said, absolutely. So we just started praying about God Please reveal to us the reason that we're truly here. A prayer I probably should have prayed nine months prior. Fair enough. I did not do so. And that afternoon, we were taken to a piece of property that I was guaranteed would be free. But it was 45 minutes outside of the city of Port-au-Prince where the main earthquake had hit. And about 20 minutes up a mountain that had no road. The area of the town was called Levesque, which is just right outside of a town called Titayan. And that translates into Land of the Dead. And this was the city dump area. This is where they would throw the bodies or throw the trash and wow. anything that nobody would claim. I remember just looking at it, being just absolutely enamored. I had more mountaintop and area behind me, but I had a million-dollar ocean view out the, the other direction. And I give utterance to the words, I wonder if coffee can grow here, <laughs> which was really odd because I hated coffee at this time of my life. Dr. Pepper was my coffee. I didn't want coffee. <laughs> It was the only word that the government official knew in English was coffee or cafe. And he starts rambling so fast that my translator can't keep up. And we start to find out that coffee used to be the number one export for Haiti. And they used to provide almost even 50% of the world's coffee back in their heyday. Wow, who knew? Yeah, I mean, it, it honestly had been kind of like a time forgotten. But this gentleman, he remembered it. So my dad and I did some research and we're kind of looking into things back in 1991. President Clinton enforced an embargo on Haiti under the guise of trying to get the dictator to stop killing his people. And what it did was actually hurt the people even further. They cut off their number one purchaser, which was America. So they had to cut a lot of their coffee plants down and start trying to grow vegetation plants and uh, anything they could feed themselves with. So after talking with this guy, going through it, we come back home, find out that our men's group had been praying and they kept hearing coffee in the spirit. They had no idea why. So we share with them our story. We all start praying. And within 30 days, Grounds for Compassion was birthed, which was our company and is still to this day. The government at Haiti gave us 6,400 acres with only one stipulation was we're not allowed to displace any of the people that were squatting on their property. And so in my opinion, we had instant workers if they wanted jobs. Yeah. But we learned real quick that coffee produces one crop a year typically, and that's not going to pay enough to to sustain people. So we had to get into full agriculture. But then we were also there not to just have a company. We were there for spiritual guidance and help. And so I believe in being the hands and feet, not just talking about it. And if we can meet their basic needs, people's ears will tend to listen. And so by providing the job was great. But then when we started doing agriculture and micro loans, we would buy the seed, but then they would return the payment with just seed instead of money. And then we could pass that seed onto the next farmer and the next farmer. And it just continued to be a, a, rep- a repetitive giving and helping each other grow. The Lord was able to help us build two different buildings for schools and one church building. It was one of the best times I think building spiritually wise in my life and my wife's, but getting close to our two year mark of being there, I was spending one week a month in Haiti, sometimes two, and then would fly home for the other parts to sell the coffee that we were producing or to talk to people about our mission and try to get sponsors. With respect to the coffee plants, you got 6,400 acres. 
Did you wind up planting coffee trees on that acreage or what happened there? So we did, but when we first surveyed it, we found a couple thousand plants that were growing wild. Ah. So we were able to get a harvest the first year. That's amazing. Which, but yeah, typically would be impossible. Mm-hmm. We had that coffee tested. We sent it actually to a farm, a friend farm that we had in Hawaii, who is an older gentleman, has been in coffee for many years, and he remembered Haitian coffee. And he told us, he's like, this is the coffee I remember. Don't change anything. Don't buy or bring any plants from any other countries. Take this and replant it and grow your coffee. He said, the the land will remember. Just plant it. Let the land do what it needs to do. And that next year, right before harvest, we were hit with a hurricane and it wiped out everything we had planted. Oh, man. But we didn't lose one person through the floods. We didn't lose one animal. We only lost our plants. But it opened up a door for us to start doing business and ministry with Convoy of Hope. And some of these other ministries who had never seen, heard of us, we didn't really know much of them. And we got to watch God's economy work. And some of these people came alongside of us, not knowing what we were doing there for this community, and helped us grow. They fed our people. They helped us replant. We got to go alongside and find these other villages that they were in and get to do life with some of these people. And it just, it, it was a, it was a hard time, but it connected so many people. How many years, Bradley, have you been in this now? We're going into our 13th year. And so you're still growing and you're exporting it primarily back to the United States. Is that correct? Well, unfortunately we are not in Haiti any longer. So around the two year mark, right before I was to head back to Haiti, my wife's sister passed away. She had overdosed on drugs. And so that put a halt to that, that trip. And we had to deal with family, a lot of family issues, which was a very difficult dynamic for us. As I'm heading out four months later, her brother-in-law overdosed and died. Oh man. And so I, I had to still go on this trip and I come back and we, we had a six year old niece that we ended up adopting from this tragedy. I remember the phone call I got when I was in Haiti right before I came back home though. My wife telling me, she's like, I I think I finally figured out why God is allowing all these things to happen every time you're gone. And I remember thinking, here it comes. She doesn't know you, God. She doesn't know that this is just a tax. She's going to think that we're not supposed to be in Haiti anymore. She's going to think we're not supposed to be doing these things. That, And she stopped me and she said, it's because God needs me to trust him more than you. And I lost it. Mm Mm-hmm. And I I realize that my wife is so much further along in her relationship with God than I am, that she knows how and she can see where to trust him so much better than I can. God, I need to see it like that. Mm. And you have to understand, this is a woman who did not grow up in church, who was, there wasn't a drug she didn't do. She'll tell you she really wasn't suicidal, but yet you, when you hear her stories about all the drugs that she would do, I mean, she, it's like she tried to kill herself and the aspect of God keeping her alive and showing up, she didn't recognize till later. And unfortunately, it happened right before her mom died. The Lord started to reveal himself to her. So now, 13 years you've been in this space, right, with the coffee. Mm-hmm. And you have, your own, you have your own roasting place and coffee shop now in the Oklahoma City area, correct? Well, not really a coffee shop. We call it the coffee shop just because it's been dubbed that. And people can walk into our offices and get a free cup of coffee at any time. And if they need to talk or they need prayer or whatever, we're here for them. 
But yes, we import, we roast, we package, and we distribute. We do executive coffee service for people's offices, uh, church coffee service, which is how we really got started. But we also do consulting. We help people open up their coffee shops or their dreams. And we roast for those shops. We provide anything and everything that a coffee shop could ever need, whether it's machines, equipment, beans, syrup, sauces, tables, chairs, whatever they may need. But really what our goal is, is to come alongside them and encourage them and get them on a path to success. And it's grounds for compassion, the number four, dot com. Or G, the number four, the letter C, dot coffee. At this point now, this is obviously full-time. You've been out of the insurance industry for years, correct? Yep. Since 2016 is the last time I was in the insurance business. And where are you importing your coffee from now? So we use a broker now. It makes things a lot easier on us. And we bring in coffee from nine different countries. Uh, unfortunately, Haiti is not one of them. There has been a lot of unrest and different corruptions that go on, which has made it super expensive. And just we don't have the uh, the market for it anymore. But my hope and my heart is still with Haiti and that one day I will be able to return. As we finish here, we'd love to have you pray for our listeners, Bradley. Oh, absolutely. Lord, I just I want to thank you for this time that we've gotten to share. And Lord, I, I pray that this time has been able to be a blessing to others, that people will see and understand that you're so much bigger than their problem. You are literally the Savior and that you can turn things around and that if anybody understands anything or takes anything from this today, God, I hope that they hear that you're just not finished with us yet. There is hope, even when it seems like there is none, that there is hope. Lord, we thank you so much for all that you do and that you're continuing to do in and through us. And I pray, Father God, that it is for your glory. This is continuing to move forward. Lord, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Bradley, thank you for sharing your story. So appreciate it. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. Please make sure you subscribe to the show and share this with someone you believe would be encouraged and motivated by these stories. Until next time, I'm Brian Robinson reminding you that the greatest decision you could ever make is to ask Jesus Christ to become the Lord of your life. If you haven't done that, read Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. Thanks again for listening.